when you're raising kids, um, you, you teach them cause and effect. You have a household with young children, and you teach them things like you don't touch the stove. If you touch the hot stove, you're going to burn your hand. Don't put your finger in the light socket. If you put your finger in the light socket, you're going to get electrocuted. Cause and effect. If you do this, this will happen. If you do this, I promise this is going to happen. You, you say, you can't eat candy for breakfast. No, you can't have ice cream for breakfast. Because if you keep doing that, this is going to happen to your body. This is going to be the repercussions on your health. And then they get a little bit older, and then you say, no, you've got, trust me, you've got to do your homework. You've got to sit down, focus. I know, I know you might not love this particular subject, but you've got to do it. Because if you don't study, this is the effect of, of, for school. And then it continues. And then they get a part-time job. And then they, they don't like the part-time job. You say, I know you might not like the job, but part of life is going to be that you're going to have to work in difficult situations with difficult people, cause and effect. If you keep leaving situations every time they get hard, you know, it's that this is, this is the effect. And you continually are teaching your children these, 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 these processes. And then they, your kids get interested in someone and, and they're, they're entering into the, the, the arena of romance, these kinds of things. And you begin to talk to them about trust, how trust is the basis of every single relationship. And you want to be trustworthy. And right when they're little, you're building that into them. You say, don't lie to mommy and daddy. Don't lie so that the situation is more favorable for you. Because if you lie to make the situation more favorable, you're going, to, you're going to reap the consequences of mistrust. And that's going to impact your corporate relationships and your friendships and your romances and your marriages. Trust is the basis of every relationship. Cause and effect. On and on and on, cause and effect. We get to the end of Paul's letter. The text for this morning is Galatians chapter 6, where Paul gives a very famous teaching. It's known very widely, even this phrasing... From those who are not even church at all, sowing and reaping. Cause and effect. Where Paul takes us to this uh, cause and effect relationship of, of our lives and of our habits. And, but the, the purpose of him bringing this up is consistent with the theme of the whole letter of Galatians, which is living in the freedom of the gospel. You are justified by grace and through faith in Christ alone, and now you're to live in the freedom of that truth. That freedom looks a particular way. And that, and that particular way is going to look like the cause and effect of doing certain things and not doing other things. So it, as Paul is concluding his letter, he brings us to this very famous passage on sowing and reaping. And what you find as we, as we unpack it in a minute is that the letter to the Galatians has got grace-shaped bookends. He begins the letter talking about what God's grace is, and he ends the letter about talking about what God's grace does. He begins the letter by talking about what the gospel is, and now we're coming to the end of the letter where he's talking about what that gospel on the ground actually does. And so this is his goal. For those of you who are newer to the church or newer to the scriptures, before I read this text in Galatians 6, I just want to be clear on what the gospel actually is. The gospel is that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we could never live. And he died an atoning death on our behalf. So that in the end, our end is not death, but life. And he rose from the grave on the third day, which gives us as Christians the assurance that in the end, God is restoring all things. The reason why we trust in that good news, that Christ provided everything that God's perfect law requires, is because in the beginning, when man sinned, you and I are born into a condition of sin. 
It's not just a sinful act that we may do or not do. It is a condition of sin whereby we need a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior. The reason why all men die is because sin has broken the earth. It's broken nature, it's broken our bodies, it's alienated us from God, it's alienated us from each other, and it's alienated us from ourselves. And Christ is the remedy for that sin. This is the gospel, that is the good news. Paul began with that, and now he's showing us the implications of that. That the Father has planned our freedom, the Son has accomplished it, the Spirit is applying it, and right here in this text, we're encouraged to keep in step with what the Spirit is doing. Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share in all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, only that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that you may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, brothers. Amen. This is God's word. Now, the end of this letter seems a little bit like there's a series of disconnected thoughts, that Paul is kind of rapid-firing all of these disconnected thoughts. It seems that way, But I want to show you this morning that he's actually doing two things simultaneously. Final warnings and final invitations at the same time. The whole reason Paul wrote this letter in the first place was there was horrific teaching that came in Galatia and it was false. The teaching was saying, well, yeah, Jesus is great, but it's what Christ did and your obedience that saves you. And the teaching was a mess and it just went from there. They were trying to bring back the Mosaic ceremonial law and... All of these things, and it, it was a mess. So what Paul is doing is he's bringing final warnings. Don't go to the false gospel. Trust in Christ alone, apart from your work. And then a final invitation of sowing and reaping to the Spirit. And both his warning and his invitation are underscoring the whole message of his letter, which is live in gospel freedom. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. The freedom of the gospel is preserved through faithful teaching. It is enjoyed through faithful habits, and it is expressed through loving actions. So first, let's look at how gospel freedom is preserved through faithful teaching. 
So these false teachers came into Galatia and they insisted that salvation was only available to those who kept God's law. And Paul said, no, salvation is only available by trusting in Christ, who's the only one who ever kept God's law the way that it's supposed to be kept, which is P.S. perfectly. And so then when you get to verse 6, Paul, uh, the verse we started with, he says, let, let those who are being taught uh, by the teachers share in all things. And that one little phrase has massive implications, so I want to kind of unpack it for a bit, because Paul wants the true gospel preserved. So to ha- if he, the whole reason he wrote the letter is because there was a false gospel, because the only way to preserve this is to have people who are trained to, to preach and teach the grace of Christ and the true gospel. So he criticizes the false teachers. He read it there in 13, 13 through 15 as this huge scathing criticism of the false teachers, he says they can't separate the law from the gospel. Um, And the law was given to show us our need for a savior, but the false teachers have made the law the savior. The law was there to say you need saving, and the false teachers have said, well, yeah, and the way to save yourself is to keep the law. So they made the law the vehicle for salvation, and Paul goes, you've messed this whole thing up. We need some people to teach the grace of Christ and teach all of Scripture through the lens of the grace of Christ so that we can live to the glory of God apart from our work, uh, from the burden and guilt of, of that. And we don't want to get into mixing the law and the gospel and creating this crazy coxic, you know, toxic cocktail. Um, and in fact, you remember, he was so angry about all this that just one chapter ago, at the beginning of chapter 5, he's so angry at it. He says, the, you know, they're trying to bring back the circumcision. I hope the knife slips. Just go the whole way. Take the whole thing off. You think I'm not being crude. I'm being very true to the Greek. I'm actually toning it down. Because he said, this, this message, I, I, we need to just cut off all this false teaching. And so we need faithful teaching. The, the word uh, teaching there, he wants the gospel to be preserved. And so in essence, uh, he wants all of the new converts to be taught the goodness of the grace of Christ. He wants the church encouraged by that and everybody else coming into it to be systematically taught the scripture through a lens that's shaped like a cross, not a stone tablet. So... The word taught in the Greek is katechimenos, which means it's like it's systematic. That's where we get our English word catechism from. So it's a systematic teaching that builds, right? That's what we're doing with the Redeemer kids across the hallway. Those little guys, they're getting, they're getting you know, bite-sized gospel. Every Sunday morning, we're taking them through the Old Testament, and we're showing them from each Old Testament passage how that anticipates Jesus. We're showing them that all Scripture points to the grace of Christ. So they're getting that. So if there's a kid out there, and he goes from grades 1 or she goes from grades 1 out to grades uh, 5, she's gonna, uh, he or she is going to go through that twice. That's the goal here. The, Susan talked about the youth catechism class. Some of you are teachers in that. And so it's systematically teaching them the goodness. That's what we're doing here. So this is the word that Paul gives. And the reason why it's so important is because faithful teaching gives the church assurance. False teaching gives the church anxiety. Faithful teaching will call the church to obedience to Christ because they want to imitate Christ from gratitude. But false teaching will call the church to the obedience of Christ out of guilt, out of the need of needing to earn something from Christ. So Paul says we, we need, this is code red critical that this happens. And so some people have uh, criticism, modern, modern, modern uh, criticism of the church today would be, well, it's become an organization, it's this big, huge thing, it's corporate, and those, uh, those are good... Those can be good criticisms. There's truth to those criticisms. People will say, well, that's nothing like the early church. This big, huge you know, uh, conglomerate, that's not like the early church. Those are, those are good criticisms. And I definitely sympathize 
with people who have come out of maybe a legalistic situation where the gospel is lost or it's a moral program and Jesus is kind of in the background someplace or, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a conference event center. So I definitely sympathize with that criticism. Here's the challenge, though. Paul is not allowing the church to go into individual spiritualism, which is why he says that those who are receiving from those who teach share with them all things because he's trying to preserve the gospel through faithful teaching. He doesn't say, hey, Christ has done it all. He's fulfilled the law. Go and live your personal truths out now, right? He's like, how do we not become individual spiritualists? So the, the, the challenge with those who can sometimes get frustrated with this big situation that maybe doesn't look like the early church is they actually swing into another ditch that doesn't look like the early church. And they say, you know, all preachers and teachers are crooks and they're just going to screw up the gospel anyways. So five or six of us are just going to hang out in our house and we're just going to have bread and wine and we're just going to love each other in that's church. We don't need any teaching up in here. The irony of that is that doesn't look anything like the early church either. Right? It's just an error in the other ditch. Because Paul didn't say, you're free, you're free in Christ, now you know, go do what you will. He's, he, he needs the gospel preserved through faithful teaching. And actually, if you read the first century... Um, church theologians, those men that the apostles mentored, right, Clement and Ignatius and Polycarp, these guys are theological heavyweights. And they're the, they're, they're the ones that the, the apostles mentored, so they weren't playing around. They were like, we got to keep the goodness of Christ's grace through every text of Scripture so that we can live to God's glory and let God's law guide us, not from a sense of guilt, but gratitude. We want to do this well. So the teaching was important. And so then Paul describes the relationship by saying that you're there to share in all things. And in, in the English, sometimes we can look at that, you know, hey, those of you who are being taught, share in all things with the teacher. Um, and we can just see that in a North American way, like, you know, paycheck for service rent, rendered. You know, well, you've got to keep the lights on. That, that's not in view here at all. In the, in the English, we can kind of look at it and say, hey, those are being taught, share in all things. But in the Greek, the, the word for sharing in all things isn't just... Um, sharing, pooling your resources together, though it does mean that, which is, of course, what we do, what the church has always done. But the, 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 the word for the sharing in all things is this word uh, koinonitao, which is uh, the, uh, the plural version of the word koinonia. Koinonia means fellowship, relationship and fellowship, but the, the, the plural form of the word here means it's a, it's a fellowship that's resulting in a sharing. So, it, so I'm not just the paid hired gun who's up here and, well, since I'm going to teach you the, this ancient text, I should get paid for it. So you give, that's not what's in view. Paul's like, there's got to be this, the teachers got to lay their lives down for the church and then they live in this uh, beautiful community together. So the gospel freedom that Paul wants is preserved through faithful teaching and he doesn't want the Galatians falling prey to the false stuff, which leads us to the next thing of gospel freedom being enjoyed through these faithful habits. And so we come to this um, this phrase where he says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you reap. Notice his phrasing, don't be deceived. That should remind us of earlier in the letter where he was like, who deceived you? See, this deception is a massive theme in Galatians. You got, you got taken down the garden path. Who fooled you? How did this happen? So here he says, don't be deceived. It's a, it's a strong theme in the letter and he's, this is his final appeal. He wants them to live in gospel freedom So he connects this, don't be deceived, and then he brings in the sowing and reaping. What's he talking about now? What's the sowing? What's this reaping? He's stressing the importance of having habits, which of course come from faithful teaching, that will reinforce gospel freedom. 
reinforce gospel freedom so we can enjoy gospel freedom. He doesn't say sowing and reaping earns your gospel freedom. He doesn't say sowing and reaping is what's going to validate your gospel freedom. He's saying that the whole reaping is the enjoying of something that Christ has already done and accomplished. He's not contradicting himself at the end of his letter. So he says, Paul goes to nature and he uses this metaphor because sowing and reaping is an absolute agricultural principle. So he goes to the great law of returns in agriculture and he goes, what you sow, you reap, no questions asked. And then he says, that agricultural principle is also a spiritual principle and a moral principle. And so he's encouraging the church to reinforce through habit uh, their gospel freedom so that they can actually enjoy it. So how does, he, how does he do this? Notice that Paul actually gives them an ultimatum. The way that he words this, he doesn't leave their room for you to not be sowing to something. He's like, it's like, you're, you are. So the way for us to think about our lives is, we just are. It's just, it's either to the spirit or to the flesh. So what does it actually mean? Well, all of us are trusting in something, which is Paul's whole point. That's the whole point of Galatians. You're trusting in something to save you. I'm telling you the gospel is trust in Christ. The false teachers are telling you trust in your good behavior. We're all trusting in something to save us. We're all trusting in something to fulfill us. We're all trusting in something to give meaning to us and give identity to us. And so our hearts are kind of like compasses that are constantly being drawn in the direction of that thing that we think is saving us. So this sowing and reaping is both a warning and an invitation. And Paul's whole goal here is not to strike fear into the heart of the church. His whole goal, his whole goal of the whole letter, is to get freedom into the heart of the church so that they live to God's glory and obedience with a great sense of freedom, not fear. The whole reason he wrote the letter is there's fear in the heart of the church. Because if you believe that you're, the sowing and reaping of your good, uh, you know, the sowing of your, your, your good deeds is going to reap your salvation, which was the false gospel, which was the first four chapters were dedicated to that, that's going to create a lot of anxiety. But if you believe that you are sowing to the Spirit, which I'm going to unpack in a minute, and you're not sowing good deeds for salvation, you're sowing something else. You're going to enjoy your gospel freedom. Your faith in God is going, to, is going to be a liberating life. So let's take a look at this. So he talks about sowing to the flesh. And in the context of his letter, we remember, we're reminded that our sin nature, just like the sin, our sin nature and our new nature and spirit, they both want to be Lord. Our hearts are restless, and so sin wants to come to the rescue. So to sow to the flesh is a selfish act, self-absorbed kind of act or of some kind that's causing us to save ourselves, to rescue ourselves from our, our restless state. And it can look a lot of ways. And Paul says that the result of that is going to be corruption because it's never going to be enough. Corruption, disintegration, right? this kind of thing. A great picture of this, uh, I think, is uh, in the, one of the first Pirates of the Caribbean movies. I think they've got 18 now, right? This is in, the, in the theater. Pirates of the Caribbean, part 18 um, is out now. But in one of the earlier ones, there's this picture where... Uh, they steal this gold, and it's called the Pirate's Curse. And uh, this one pirate, uh, Barbosa, he talks, they've got to return the gold because they thought the gold was going to satisfy them, but actually taking the gold cursed them. And now they can't be satisfied. So the irony of the curse is the thing they thought was going to satisfy them has them in eternal, 
an eternal state of decay and dissatisfaction. So I'm going to read this quote from the film because I think it's a great picture of sowing to the flesh. So I got my pirate. I'll work on my pirate. <clears throat> Let's see. How can you do it? Find it, we did. How's that? All right. So he says, Find it, we did, and there be the chest, and inside be the gold. And we took them all, we spent them, traded them, and fritted them away for drink and food and pleasurable company. But we came to realize that the drink would not satisfy, that the food turned to ash in our mouths, nor, the com- nor all the company in the world would end our lust. We are cursed men, Miss Turner. For too long I've been parched of thirst and unable to quench it. For too long I've been starved to death and haven't died. I feel nothing, not the wind on my face, nor the spray of the sea, nor the warmth of a woman's flesh. That's what he says. And the picture is, he pulls the cork off a bottle of wine, and he drinks it, but he's like a skeleton, so the wine just pours out on the boat. And no matter how much he has, he can't be satisfied. That is going to the flesh. That is the false gospel. And so, this is, Paul is not trying to scare the church and say, you can lose your salvation. He's saying, you can lose your freedom. I mean, you can have your faith in Christ alone, but not feel very free if you're sowing in the, to, to the wrong things, if you're trusting in the wrong things, if, if you're habitually going to sinful acts or trusting in your good acts. Both are two different ways of running away from God. We can run away from them in our rebellion, and we can run away from them in our rule-keeping, trusting in either one, right? And so that is what Paul's saying. Like, I want you to live in the freedom, and I want you to enjoy the freedom. You know, the book of Proverbs you know, the entire book of Proverbs starts by, by saying, well, you can sow to the flesh, and it ends with, you can sow to the Spirit. I'll give you the, I'll give you the, book, the book of Proverbs in a, in, a, in a nutshell, how to understand this thing. It starts with a picture of a woman who's a prostitute, and it ends with a picture of a woman who's virtuous. And in the, be- in the beginning is wisdom literature, and wisdom is a her. And all the, all the ladies say amen, and all the husbands are like, of course it, of course. Right? Those of you who aren't saying, of course, guys, are not very smart. Okay, so it, wisdom is a her. And in the, so notice the whole point. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, has a son who, let's face it, is an idiot. If you re, have read about Rehoboam. So Solomon is writing saying, son, you've you got two choices here. You can sow to, the, you can sow to the, the flesh or you can sow to the spirit. You can choose the prostitute or you can read all this wisdom literature or you can choose the virtuous woman. And whichever one you choose is a commentary on, not the woman! Your heart. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's invoking the church to say, hey, placing your faith in Christ alone and being united to him has implications. Being united to Christ, being united to the life source and having the, the, the life of God, the life of Christ himself by the Spirit at work in you has, has beautiful implications. So so to that. Notice that the fruit of the Spirit, if you recall, the fruit of the Spirit are virtues you can't produce. The Spirit does them. Nine virtues. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Nine things the Spirit is producing in you because you are united to Christ and you belong to Him and you're full of the Spirit of Christ. So Paul says in chapter 5, the Spirit's doing that. You can't produce this fruit of the Spirit, but now he's saying you can sow to the Spirit. I can't produce the fruit of the Spirit, but I can sow. So what is this sowing then? If sowing to the flesh is trusting in the wrong thing, what is sowing to the Spirit? And how does this all play out and what does it mean? 
Well, sowing to the Spirit is habitually turning to God, who by His grace has rescued us. And God is using our turning to Him to reform us. Sowing to the flesh is habitually turning to something that we think will rescue us. Whether it's our rebellion or our rule-keeping, we think it's going to rescue us. So sowing to the flesh is, is habitually turning to that. Sowing to the Spirit is habitually turning to God. It is habitually turning and resting in His grace. And in our turning, God does His renewing, reorienting, renovating work. That's why week in and week out, we confess our sin corporately. Right? We're supposed to be confessing our sin every day, unless you're here and you don't, you don't sin every day, in which case you should write a book. <laughs> and then I'll do a book review saying they're a heretic. Okay? Because we, we, all, we all can't live to the perfection of Christ 24-7. But... Because we are united to Christ, we increasingly desire to, and the fruit of the Spirit is gradually increasingly being produced, and that is our renewing trajectory. So Paul is saying to sow to that is not to produce it. The Spirit does the producing. We do the turning. We do the trusting. We do the confessing. We do the resting. And that, this is the, the, the freedom, which is the major theme of his letter, the freedom of the gospel. Christ saved you, the Spirit is now producing something in you, and now you can sow to what the Spirit is doing by resting and trusting in that. He wants them to enjoy their, their gospel freedom. So he needs them to leave their self-sufficiency. Again, if you were to go home this afternoon and go, was Paul on or off today? The way for you to discover if the sermon is on or off would be to go back and read the whole letter and see... Are the Galatians living in self-sufficiency? Is the message self-sufficiency? And is Paul interrupting the self-sufficiency saying, hold on. And I'm arguing that that's exactly what's going on here. The false gospel is self-sufficiency. And Paul is saying, you sow to the Spirit, which means you abandon your self-sufficiency, and you rest in Christ's great sufficiency and his grace. This is the good, this is the good news of the gospel. So when the scripture says, do this, don't do that, when you're teaching your children the scriptures and you're reading scriptures that seem to be saying, do this and don't do that, God's goal is not better behavior. God's goal is awakening your true identity. Because when the scripture says, do, do this and not that, it's not just a prescription. It's actually a description of who, by the Spirit, we are united to Christ. Of course we look in the mirror and we say, that doesn't describe me. Of course we do. Of course the fruit of the Spirit grows so slowly in our lives that we're like little children who, you know, they plant a seed and then they go back an hour later and they go, hmm? And then the next day, yeah! And then three days later, they're like, that seed's not even growing, you know? We've all done that. We've all been that kid, right? And so this is why underneath the imperatives of Scripture are the indicatives of Scripture. The imperative, the imperative of Scripture is do this in light, of, in light of what's true. But the indicatives of Scripture are this is true. And the indicative of Scripture for you today, church, is your sins are gone. You are united to Christ you are not going to pay 
the penalty of your sin. And not only that, but as you leave the doors this morning, you are free now in the gospel to be who you truly are, united to Christ, in, in Christ. So you, the Spirit is right here and right now producing something in you. And you get to leave, not under the burden of producing something that only the Spirit can do, but sow to that. Trust it. Turn to Him. Rest in it. Just as Augustine said, the, the hearts of man are forever restless, and they will remain restless until they find their rest in God. And so we see the gospel freedom is preserved through faithful teaching. Gospel freedom is enjoyed through faithful habits. And finally, gospel freedom is expressed through loving actions. So the letter begins with what the gospel is. Now Paul gets to what the gospel does. And he shows us what it looks like on the ground. So in verses 9 and 10, he says, Don't grow weary in doing good. Right? Which is a great encouragement because there's... There's a period of time between planting a seed and having the harvest. You don't plant corn and then eat corn on the cob that afternoon. It's not how it works. So Paul uses the agricultural principle to encourage the church that the work that the Spirit is doing is gradual and eventual, so don't grow weary. Yeah, but I just screwed up again and looked in the mirror and I can't believe what I've done this week. I can't, if you knew what I thought, if you knew what was going on in my mind, if you knew what I did, if you knew how I felt, confess. Live in confession. Because in your confession, you are turning away from your self-sufficiency and you are sowing to the Spirit. You see how this works? It's beautiful. It's so glorious. He says, don't grow weary in doing well. In verse 10, this gospel simplicity. What is this doing good? Doing good that, that, that Paul is encouraging the church in. It's loving the person who's in front of us. You know what's amazing about this is when Paul closes the letter, he's firing all kinds of shots across the bow at the religious leaders. He's taking everything they've been teaching and he's flipping it on its head. Because what were the religious people saying? They were saying, do good. Yeah, but they were saying, do good in a vertical way. And Paul is saying, do good in a horizontal way. They're saying, do good because God is watching. Right? Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. <laughs> you know, because the father up above is freaking out your kids with this terrible song. Right? <laughs> right? Because the religious leaders have said, hey, do good, because that's saving you. Paul ends the letter by going, and he goes, do good, because Christ already saved you. You're resting in an act of righteousness as Christ did everything that we were, we, we were supposed to do but didn't. You are resting in a passive uh, righteousness because now all of that has been imputed to you. And now you are being invited into a horizontal, not vertical, a horizontal act of righteousness to do good. Love your neighbor because you're free. It's beautiful. We don't do good things in the hopes that God will accept us. We do good things because in Christ we're already accepted. We don't do good in the hopes that God will bless us. We do good because in Christ, we're already blessed. We don't do good in the hopes that God will notice and reward us. We do good because united to Christ, we already have a reward. So we're free. That's the whole point of this letter. Gospel freedom. Now what are you going to do with your freedom? Go and enjoy it. Love the person who's in front of you. Right? We see the flow of Paul's gospel logic here. See, if I'm habitually sowing to my flesh to save me, I can't love the person in front of me because I'm looking at me. But the way for 
me love you, is to have a heart that's at rest in what Christ has did, so I'm free to give my life away now. And then Paul throws in this phrase, and he says, especially those of the household of faith, which for us, in the immediate context, means this room. How do you love the people in this room if I don't know you, if I don't know, you, if I don't know your name or whatever? It's time. It's just, it's getting out of ourselves and loving and caring and knowing. I can't bear your burden if I'm not close enough to you to even know what your burden is. And that doesn't mean that everybody in this whole room is going to be, you know, unique, you know, linked in such a way that you're all best friends. Okay, that's, that's a bit of a, a, you know, that's a high bar, I think, that I don't think anybody, including the early church, was living in that way. But there was a commitment, though. There was a commitment to say, no, we're going to care and love uh, one another in light of what Christ has done for us. And so I'm going to close with this. You know, Paul, in verse 11, he says, Do you see with with the large letters I'm writing? What a great verse. Galatia! I'm writing in all caps, guys! You know, when you get those texts that are all all caps, you're like, whoa, stop yelling, bro. All caps. This, This part of the letter... All caps. Why? Because this is Paul's final shot across the bow. All the false teachers so that they can enjoy their gospel freedom. And then he goes into this whole thing about circumcision, which I'm not going to unpack. But the basic thing is this. It's that Christianity is an inward change. It's not external observance. Christian faith is substantial. It's not superficial. And so as a result of that, Paul goes on in verse 14 to say, The world is dead to me. He doesn't say the world is dead. He says it's dead to me, which again speaks to his freedom. If the world is dead to you, that means you can actually enjoy it because you don't need to fear it. You don't need to conform to it and you don't need to worship it. So the way to actually walk out of here and enjoy your vocation, your recreation, your friends, your family, stuff, material, right? We're not Gnostics, you know, material things are evil. Everybody live in cardboard boxes. That's not Christian faith. The way to actually enjoy everything is to not need anything. So that that means that all of the beautiful, rich gifts in your life you get to enjoy because they're just a taste of what you're going to have forever. And all of the horrible things, the nasty things, the sorrowful things, the suffering, the tragedy, all of those things going on in our life are they are all going to be eradicated. Revelation 19, and he will wipe every tear from every eye, and sorrow and suffering will be no more. That's where this whole thing is going. So Paul ends the letter to the Galatians by going, enjoy your freedom. Christ has done it all. Live to the glory of the one who saved you in grace, because that's how you actually enjoy your life. You're not conforming, you're not worshiping, you're not fearful, you're free. We continue the way we began, by grace. The cross is the form of God's love for us, and it's the fuel for our love for others. And the freedom of the gospel is preserved through faithful teaching, it is enjoyed through faithful habits, and it's expressed through loving actions. Let's pray.